This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. My mindset had to be, I'm going to do the best I can do and the, the way I'm good at doing it. And if that's not good enough for other people, then that's okay. And it's, you know, I never wanted anything so desperately enough that I would change myself to try to make it happen. I think just yeah. being myself was a secret to my success. And, yeah. and if I, if I got something because I was myself, great. But if I didn't get something because I was myself, that was okay too. So, yeah. so just being myself was incredibly important to me, being true to myself, if you will, and yeah. not trying to be somebody I wasn't. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplores.com. How many times in your life have you moved from one home to another? And how far away was that new home? How different from the old one was your new neighborhood? According to data from the U.S. Census Bureau, the average person in the United States moves residences more than 11 times in his or her lifetime. And the typical American lives just 18 miles from home. My guest today made a very unique move back in 2001. She packed up her earthbound life completely, sold the house, closed her bank accounts, everything, and moved off the planet entirely. Astronaut Susan Helms already had three space shuttle flights under her belt when she relocated to the International Space Station for five months as a member of the second expedition crew to live and work there. Being fully untethered from Earth gave her a very different perspective on living in space. Along with the details of living 250 miles above the planet, Susan shares her experiences of being one of the first women to graduate from the United States Air Force Academy, on how engineering blends creativity and math to create new possibilities, and the principles of character and leadership that helped her rise to the rank of three-star general in the United States Air Force. So, General Helm, Susan, it is so delightful to see you again. It's been a long time. Since the last time, I think I drove through Ohio in my RV and parked in your driveway. And it seems like we had a pretty good night on the town there, going to see the musical. I think we had a grand old time, and that's, that's quite the rig you've got there. It was a lot of fun to see. Oh, yeah. It's like a little spaceship. I just love it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get around to talking about your life and experiences in spaceships in the course of the conversation. But I'd like to start way further back with the young Susan Helms, born in Charlotte, somewhere along the way, moved to New Mexico. But, you know, who who was that young Susan Helms at, you know, early grade school years? Or tell us about her. Well, she was um, an incredible introvert, first of all. That's what I remember is I almost never talked or spoke up. I observed, but I was not someone who engaged. And when I was a kid, I was so prone to not talking that I think my parents actually had me check for brain damage to see if I had, <laughs> you know, something that happened. And, and when I was born, I was born early. And so there was some drama around my birth. And so they worried a couple years later because I wasn't talking if it if there was some sort of long standing issue, <laughs> and it's so 
they were really concerned about it. I was the firstborn. This was the, you know, late fifties, early sixties, you know, parents were concerned about this stuff. And so I think they did get me checked out, but they couldn't find anything wrong. And then one day my mom found me in my bedroom, lining up all my dolls and talking, talking, talking to all my dolls, you know, having conversations with them that I had had people have with me that I never responded to. And she's like, there's nothing wrong with this kid. She's fine. How old would you have been at that point? Probably two or three. Wow. And so mom quit worrying right then and said, you know, there's nothing wrong with her. She just doesn't want to talk. (laughs) And so, and so I was incredibly shy, you know, kindergarten. I remember being an exercise in high stress because I was around a lot of people and, and I was not used to, I had a very difficult time making friends because of being so shy. And so me growing up was, was uh, a lot about just taking care of myself and being curious and observant, but not being the kind of kid who is the life of the party at all, not by any stretch. And it was very difficult for me to make friends. I usually made only one or two friends. My dad was in the military. We moved around every few years and Well, that didn't help. No, it didn't help. And, you know, my sister, Nancy, who's right behind me is an extrovert. And so um, she was always making friends, but, but I usually only made one or two and then it was time to move in a few years. And I would start that process all over again of trying to find friends. And Nancy could fill all the airwaves, I guess. Yeah, very easily. (laughs) (laughs) Yin and yang, yin and yang, you know, oil and water, all the metaphors apply here. So... Were you studious? How, how were you in school? I was very studious. I was a smart little thing. I was really, really good at math right from the get-go. I got algebra way early. So even though social studies and what we would call the soft, the soft studies, you know, the social studies and the history, English. history and things like that. Yeah, I, I, I was good at English uh, because there was a logic to it. So anything that was logical and mathematic-like, including science, I really excelled at. And uh, and I think my parents figured out pretty early on that I got math and I was able to read way early. Like by the time I got to first grade, I was already reading and nobody knew it. And I had just figured it out. Mom and dad, mom in particular, used to read to us every night. And somewhere along the way at three or four years old, I, I figured out what she was saying and how that translated to the words on the page. And so I was able to read when I hit grade school. So it just kind of clicked. It clicked. Reading clicked. I've always been a lifelong reader, obviously, but the math really clicked. And wow. so I was super good at math, which I don't recollect anyone marveling at that because I was a girl. I just recollect people marveling at it because I was so young. Huh, interesting. And I'm I'm not a math prodigy by any stretch the way people measure it today, but I would say my parents really encouraged my interest in it, which I think is a theme probably of my whole life is that when you're encouraged and people see you're able to do things and they encourage you to keep doing them, you know, no matter what your gender is, that I think is an important thing about my background that's worth noting. I never, ever got discouragement just because I was a female. And they show some confidence in you and give you some next things to do, some eager challenges. Yeah. Right. Were you athletic? Were you into sports? Or <laughs> I was not athletic. No. <laughs> uh, in fact, my mom, not to out her here, but uh, I wasn't good at kickball. I, w- I was always that last kid picked for sports because I was that studious little nerd. And my mom, I remember her telling me when I was in middle school, I think, well, don't worry, honey, you're a girl. You don't need to be good at sports. <laughs> you, usually they say I that mean, about math. <laughs> I know. I know. So the math highly encouraged, but, you know, the, the sports, don't worry about yeah. it, Susan. It, you're not going to need it. And, of course, all that fell on its head when I decided to apply later on to one of the service academies because you have to be good at athletics to pass the test to get in. Yeah, yeah. And there's a whole story there with my dad putting me on a crash course of getting my physical conditioning up to an acceptable yeah. level for the academy. Well, we'll come to that along the way. But you also, right. you've got quite a musical talent. I'm wondering where that started and when you recognized that and how, how you developed it. Yeah. The, so, you know, it's very interesting. There's this little Disney cartoon called Donald Duck in Math Magic Land. And... 
I don't know if people out there have heard it. It's out there on YouTube. You can watch it. But the relationship between math and music is made very, very clear in that little cartoon. And so when people say you're really good at music, I would say it's probably because I was really good at math. And and I think there's a relationship between people who are good at math and science and who are also good at music. But anyway, the bottom line is my parents put me on piano lessons in first or second grade. I think I was six. And so I just kept at it. I was a, an obedient little kid. So when mom said, you know, you need to practice a half hour every day, I did it. And, yeah. uh, and I enjoyed it. And all through my entire childhood through, you know, 18 years old, I took lessons. Wow. They discovered that I could play by ear around seventh or eighth grade. So you have also a natural ear because kind of yes. knowing the mechanics and math of music is different from being able to hold a tune or know when you're on key or off, which would be, which would be my problem. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's uh it was a gift that, you know, I didn't realize I had until I got to, I think, junior high. And then I was starting to become that girl that was accompanying the choir on piano or, you know, playing the timpani in the band. I also started doing drumming stuff in middle school. And so I had a natural ear, which you really do have to have to play the, the timpani and some of the drum instruments. And then the piano part, I was able to hear a song and then play it on the piano, which... Wow. To me, it was completely natural, but to a lot of people, it's again another one of those moments where people go, "Wow, that is not so usual." No, and you know, even today, even though I haven't really kept up with the piano like I should, I can hear a song on the radio and then play it on the piano. And wow, that was a gift that carried me through junior high and high school with a lot of music in my life. Unlike sports, you know, music <laughs> was sort of the you know, the amount of money and time I spent on music was probably equivalent to what other kids did on sports. Oh, probably. So you told me once that when you were, you must have been about in your mid-20s, and some of the six of us first women in the astronaut corps would fly through, I think it was Cannon Air Force Base that your dad was stationed at the time. He would make us sign autographs for you and bring them to you. And, and I think the very <laughs> first time you were in the office, you came by my office, in fact, and showed me that god-awful <laughs> 1978 portrait that I'd inscribed to some kid named Susan. When did you move to Mexico? And is and is that kind of where your interest in maybe becoming an Air Force officer started? No, actually, this goes way back to eighth grade. Really? Yes. You know, we were in living in Portland, Oregon. And I had a, a one good girlfriend in Portland, Oregon, Marianne, who I'm still close to. And she and I decided in eighth grade what we were going to be when we grew up. And I knew that I wanted, yeah, we had a guidance counselor who was super, super engaged. And the guidance counselor was a woman we, you know, all of us kids really liked. And because she was smart, her name was Bev Pratt. She, she really cared about the kids and she got engaged a lot. You know, she never let anything slip by. She was always on top of what everybody was up to. And and she didn't steer, you know, back, you're not that much younger than me, the conventional wisdom for a guidance counselor for a young girl, even if very bright, would have been teacher, nurse, secretary, but not Mrs. Pratt? No, not Mrs. Pratt. Nope. She was, she was like, well, you're really good at math and science. So what are you going to do about it? <laughs> I mean, she was that kind of guidance counselor. You know, college is an absolute must. So have you thought about what you want to get a degree in? And I mean, this was eighth grade. And Marianne knew she wanted to be a nurse. And I knew after figuring out how to be a creative math person that engineering was, you know, the combination of math and creativity. So so I was creative. I was also taking art classes because I enjoyed the creativity of art. And then we had music. And then we had math. And I think it was the guidance counselor who said, you know, you ought to look at engineering as a degree. Wow. Because that happens to fit your skill set, basically, was what she was saying. So in eighth grade, Marianne and I decided we were going to go to the University of Oregon. Uh, I'm sorry, Oregon State in Corvallis. And the two of us were going to interview the deans of the nursing college and the engineering college. And so we <laughs> took a bus to Oregon Seriously? State. Seriously? The two of us and asked for appointments with the deans of those schools. Marianne didn't get one, but I did. And you know, think of it now, you know, what's this eighth grader doing showing up 
interviewing the dean of engineering because she's interested in going to Oregon State for engineering. So that was, um, and, and Oregon State had an ROTC program. So to get to the military thing, I remember telling my dad and mom, I wanted to go into the Air Force also when I became an engineer because the Air Force had a lot of technical engineering, okay. ROTC. and It was the things you thought you'd get to do in the Air Force. Did, did you have any picture of other avenues as an engineer that just locked in? Nope. I was locked in eighth grade, okay. locked in. So I told my dad, I want to be an engineer in the Air Force. Guy had bad eyesight. So I knew I wasn't going to be a pilot like him. And I remember him saying, well, you should go to the Air Force Academy, <laughs> except they don't take <laughs> women. <laughs> and, I was, and he explained to me what the Air Force Academy was, which he revered. And he hadn't been a grad of the academy. And I said, oh, yeah, that does sound like exactly where I need to go. And that's when I learned it was male only. But I filed it away. So this would have been what years that you had that how, eighth grade? 1971. Okay. So 1971. And, you know, back then, I think if women were pregnant, they were kicked out of the Air Force. I mean, I, that was not that far removed from a, a big change made by Congress in 1984. 1975. So, yeah. so anyway, uh, I was Oregon State, Oregon State, Oregon State. I even sent in a housing deposit to hold my place uh, with the plan to go to ROTC and major in engineering. And then the academies, thanks to Congress, the 94th Congress, the academies opened up to women in 1975. That was the first year women could start there? They opened up in 75 for the first class to enter in 1976, which was okay. the year I graduated from high school. So the timing, you know, they say timing is everything. This is clearly one of those examples of timing being everything. So yeah. all of a sudden, my mom saw the advertisement in October of 1975 saying, oh, the academies are going to bring women in in the summer of 76. And all of a sudden, this physical fitness thing loomed in my face. As I mean, I knew I could pass academically. I knew I could pass with the stuff I was doing. I was president of the band. And so the, the leadership stuff they look for, I had a really good record of stuff I was involved in. And, but the physical fitness thing, yeah, you know, mom had always said I wouldn't need it. Now what? <laughs> and it's, it's a thing. It's a really high, high standard. And I couldn't even run a quarter of a mile when dad put me on the crash course program. So did he set this course up himself or throw you at a trainer or? He set it up himself. So we had, you know, the physical fitness test was pull-ups, sit-ups, push-ups, running. So we just kept doing that over and over and over again until I could run a mile, I think. So 6 a.m. calisthenics with dad? <laughs> and he put up a, a chin-up bar at the entrance to my bedroom. So I would oh, chin wow. myself. Of course, I couldn't uh, really do it but it was his way of motivating me, you know, and he was an officer in the Air Force. So he was familiar with the physical fitness standards yeah. and the program. And he knew he had a long way to go with me. But that was the big stress for me was passing the physical fitness test that yeah. first year to get into the academy. So I had to work at that more than um, anything else I did to try to make that standard. So tell us a bit about the was there an interview for this a personal interview? Was it all just submit your papers and go for a physical? It depended on which congressman you were dealing with. Every so I had the two senators and the congressman from my district. District, I think it was District Five, Multnomah County District. I applied to all three senators and congressmen. You, you and that's what you could do. Asking for their, they need to nominate you, right? Yeah, they each had an application process to get a nomination. And every okay. application process for each of them was different. So you had to call and request the application process and fill out the paperwork. And in the case of Senator Hatfield, you had to write an essay. In the case of Senator Papwood, you had to do a personal interview, which I think people out there who remember Senator Papwood, very interesting circumstances ultimately befell him. But I had to, I had an interview with his staffers, which, which was one of the most uncomfortable interviews I've ever, ever had in my whole life, because I knew something wasn't right in that interview. I was a little 17-year-old girl going downtown to his, his yeah. office and having staffer meetings at eight o'clock at night. It was a very weird And it situation. just kind of felt creepy? It did. It felt totally creepy. Yeah. They clearly didn't take seriously this 
hey, girls are entering the academies thing. I mean, they, to them, it was a big joke. So needless to say, I didn't get a nomination from Senator Packwood, but I did get one from Senator Hatfield. And so Senator Hatfield put me forward as one of his nominees that year to the Air Force Academy. And I had never met him. And I will jump ahead 15 years when I flew in space the first time. And Kathy, you know, after you fly in space, you get an opportunity to go to Congress and get a chance to meet with the congressionals from your district. And that's the first time I met Senator Hatfield. But when I showed up, he basically said, my long lost daughter, he had been briefed (laughs) about his role in my background by his staffers before I showed up. And it was like meeting a really old friend, your favorite uncle, yeah, who had a hand in me becoming what I ultimately become. So uh, yeah, so Senator Hatfield, how many how many women went into that class of how big was the class that started in 76? And how many were women? We started with something on the order of about 15, 1600 in my class and 153 showed up that were women. There were 157, I think, selected and four of them didn't even show up the first day. So 153 women. So 10%. 10%. Yeah, about 10%. I think that's what their goal was, was to do about a 10% ratio because that was the balance of women in the Air Force writ large. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it was, there was a logic behind it that it would be about 10%. And then we graduated with 899 total, of which 97 were women. So the women's retention in my class was a little bit better than the retention of the men. Interesting. What were those first days and weeks like? I mean, you know, plebes at the academies are, you know, the hazing regime and sort of break you down and build you back up regime is, is notorious. It's famous. It has a purpose. It's not just to be mean-spirited. But you're the first women these guys have ever seen. And I would have to imagine that up until your arrival, there was a whole a whole ethos about the male warrior culture that was probably not thrilled to imagine that someone thought girls could actually do this. So I was so naive. I grew up in a family of sisters. I didn't have any brothers. And I had these very, very supportive parents who never clued me in, or if they did, I didn't listen, that there was this issue with men and women and gender inequality, so to speak, in terms of the people's views and perceptions. I, I grew up in a very progressive high school. You know, our class president was female. I was president of the band. I was female. I, this whole idea that men were superior to women never filtered into my high school experience <laughs> at all. And so when I got to the academy and realized some people thought that way, it was a major shock to me. I, I think I was talked to by some people who said, prepare yourself. And I was like, yeah, yeah, no, I'm good. But when I got there, I just didn't realize. I thought it'd be a few people. I didn't realize there was like a whole culture surrounding. Systemic. Systemic. You know, we were intruding on their territory. And then I realized, wow, the Congress changed this law, but they didn't wait until a four-year cycle to bring women in. They did it. They ripped the Band-Aid off, basically. And so there were men who were there who went to the academy because they wanted to go to an all-male school. And then the world changed underneath their feet. So there were some people who adapted better to change than others. So I had to start looking at my male compatriots, many of whom were rooting for us, it turns out, as people who you know, we're really good at accepting change and realizing this was the way the Air Force and the other services were headed. And then there were people who just can't handle change yeah. and were very bitter about it. And you learn to discern very quickly which kind of person you were dealing with. Yeah. And it was it was not just the cadets. It was also the instructors and senior officers. Congress can change laws, but they can't change minds. Right. I will say the Academy did a good job of setting up the integration process with surrogate female upperclassmen that are called air training officers. They used them Uh. the first year the academy existed, and they used them again for the first year the women entered the academy. And that was a pretty smart move. And we had a superintendent who was all in and set the tone from the top. And I think, unlike the other service academies, we were were lucky with that General Allen doing that. 
did you have trouble or wonder at all how much of the gruff you were getting was the normal gruff every plebe is going to get and and you know what what is this what part of this is about me as a woman and what part is just about plebe helms yeah i think i was really good at just letting it roll off my back because i assumed it wasn't personal it was you know it was very difficult for me to associate a particular chewing down of someone picking on me personally, they didn't think I should be there. When I could easily say, well, they're chewing me out because they just don't like women being here. And, you know, one day they'll learn and I'm not going to worry about this person because it's clear that they're, they're one of these no change people. And so I was really good at not taking things personally, especially that first year. And it helped that all of us girls you know, lived in the same women's area and we could talk about these things among ourselves. And we had a lot of, I had a lot of classmates who were of the same mindset. And so if we ever came back to the dorm and uh, someone was low, all you had to do was turn to a female classmate and go, okay, I had a bad day. And, and yeah. there were lots of girls out there who, you know, in my class, they had their heads screwed on straight. And our mutual support system, I think was one of a kind. That's great. I'm curious what lessons you think you took away from both your first year and then the academy overall. What insights about leadership? Because you you sort of said you could discern people who were change resistant and having difficulty leading in this new environment from those who others. So you had kind of both positive and not so great examples around you. What are your what takeaways you came away with? One huge takeaway was this tone from the top issue. We were in a situation where we could do comparisons of the organizational culture between us and West Point and Annapolis. And I think it was the West Point superintendent who said, no women on my watch ever. And wow. Even though he said that out loud. (laughs) Yeah, he said it out loud. And I think he might have still been in place when the girls arrived at West Point. Their organizational culture was markedly different, I think, than ours. I I think the tone from the top thing and seeing how that would permeate an entire culture was pretty clear. And and so that's why we felt, I believe, we felt pretty well sheltered by our superintendent, our three-star in charge of the whole organization, because he put it out there early, zero tolerance for this, you know, for, for for not welcoming these future officers. I mean, he, he set that way at the beginning and just adapting to change and realizing how important it is for the person on top to make those overt statements about what is and isn't acceptable was a big takeaway. Did you remember any instances where, you know, somebody misbehaved in that regard and he acted? Cause I think it's one thing to say it. And then if, you know, there's out of balance behavior that the big man or the big leader does nothing about, the organization concludes, yeah, it's good words and good window dressing, but it's not it's not serious because no one's doing anything about it. Well, they, they did something about it. What happened, ah. the class that was ahead of us was the last class that had men only. And boy, did they take and run with that. They, they gave themselves some uh, politically incorrect they were going to put an acronym on their class rings, as yes, I recall. They did. LCWB, LCWB, last class with something that starts with balls, which we can leave to the reader's imagination. <laughs> and and they were proud of it. I mean, every time they had a class event, LCWB would come out. And over the couple of years, the next couple of years, there was overt activity to try to squash that. Well, it was a very difficult thing to squash. And as you said, they ultimately snuck it onto their class ring. And what happened was there was a recall of all the class rings to get that taken ah. off. Now, how many of those those guys gave their class rings back to get it taken off? I couldn't tell you. But the fact that there was you know, a major attempt to recall and erase what the Air Force considered derogatory kind of behavior, yeah. you know, we could see it. Uh, we could see that the institution was trying. There's another example besides that one. When we were freshmen, which we call duallys, the academy was trying to be a little bit cautious. So there were 40 squadrons. A squadron is how you organize the cadets in the entire cadet wing. And 
the academy had 40 of these squadrons. And when we showed up, they only put women in the first 20 squadrons. And so they, they basically carried on for about half a year. And then the superintendent caught wind of the fact, and this is absolutely true, that the squadrons that didn't have women and only had boys were lording it over the squadrons that did. And when the superintendent caught wind of that, he changed overnight. He goes, this is going to change. And he took half of us, split us in half, the girls, and he put half of us in the other 20 squadrons. And it happened literally the night before finals week in December. So we were told the night before our finals started that our officers we have an officer that heads every squadron and the officers got us all in the, in the squadron meeting rooms and said, you, you, and you, you're going to move over to such and such a squadron starting wow. the day you get back from Christmas vacation. And so that was another example of the leadership basically saying, you know, we're not putting up with this attitude. We're going to, well, yeah. you don't like the girl, you don't want the girls. You're happy. The girls aren't there. We're going to fix that. And that I think yeah. was one of the strongest <laughs> examples of the institution backing up its words. Yeah. And that came from the top. Well, you know, there's a clip I find great running around YouTube of, it's probably a couple of years ago now, but uh, I think probably more nowadays, maybe still with some gender, but other ethnic and racial diversity. And the superintendent's got, of the Air Force Academy's got all his senior officers and the whole wing of cadets in the room and just flat out says, if you can't treat every single human being with dignity, get out. Yeah. There's no yep. place, there's no place for you here get out. We got plenty of folks behind you. Leave now. And that's Jay Silveria. When I was a three-star commander at Vandenberg, he was my deputy. He was my vice. Oh, great. He's a real good person of quality. And I was not surprised to see him do that. No. Yeah. So you get into the Air Force as a second lieutenant and an engineer. And I kind of want to fast forward. There's some key takeaways or experiences that really shaped and influenced your later path. Let's touch on those. But what led you in the end to apply to NASA for astronaut selection? <laughs> well, there are a couple of moments, by the way, both of which are related to your first flight. Oh, dear. <laughs> and so I thought about this. What are the couple of key events that made me really consider applying for the astronaut program? Because I think all of us who aren't familiar with the program would think, well, the odds are like one in a jillion of getting selected. So why apply? But when I was at grad school at Stanford, Sally Ride came through Stanford after her second flight, which was your first flight. And so she was doing her post-flight tour and swung by Stanford. And there was an announcement of her giving uh, a presentation. You couldn't have kept me away. I had to go see it. I was there at grad school and to be in the same theater with her was like, you know, I was like, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. I just couldn't believe (laughs) I was in the same room with Sally Ride. And after the presentation was was over and I, I have to tell you, it stunned me to listen to her talk and realize, wow, she's just like a normal human being. And I think that that realization changed something in me to see Sally up there talking like you know, you and I do now, we are normal human beings. And when it was over, I walked up to her to shake, I wanted to shake her hand. And I couldn't even speak to her. I was so starstruck. And I did shake her hand. And she looked at me like, okay, you're one of those groupie people or whatever. (laughs) But I I mean, walking away and realizing she was completely human and how she presented her post-flight presentation was a, a stunner. And then the second thing, Kathy, was two years later, I was up in Seattle visiting uh, my boyfriend at the time, and he and I went to the Seattle Museum, and we saw the IMAX movie, The Dream is Alive, which had you and Sally. Yeah, you and (laughs) Sally were in the movie, and Walter Cronkite narrates the movie, and Mark Darnot was in the movie. I mean, Dave Liesma. I walked out of that movie theater after seeing this for the first time, changed, because I just walked out going, I want to do that. I want to, I want to do what they did. And, you know, I'd already met Sally once and I'd screwed that up, but I thought if I ever get to meet (laughs) Kathy Sullivan, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, life will be, you know, life will be amazing the day I get to meet (laughs) Kathy Sullivan. So, so the, the IMAX movie was super inspiring. And then, and then when I uh, applied for test pilot school and I got selected as a test engineer, 
all kinds of people came out of the woodwork and said, you do realize that if you go to test pilot school, that's the pathway, is that you're now competitive to be an astronaut. And I thought, really? So I kept that in mind. And when we graduated from test pilot school in my class, 88A, Dick Covey was our guest speaker for the graduation ceremony. He another came, shuttle astronaut. Another yeah. shuttle astronaut. He came in at Air Force shuttle astronaut, you know, well-known among the Air Force community. And when I went up to shake his hand after his speech, he goes, well, I really hope we see you in Houston sometime. And I thought, you know, that's a sign. I shall, I should probably put an application in. So I did. I put an application in. And by this time, I knew I would love the job if I got selected to do it. I honestly didn't think my odds were that great because they had never selected active duty military women up to that point. Right. I mean, they had people right. like you who were in the reserves, uh, the, the ready reserves. And I think you did some reserve duty as did some of the other civilians but they never picked anyone direct from the services. And so I didn't know my odds were, if my odds were good or not, especially since Eileen Collins was also competing that year. And I thought, well, if they pick one, they're going to pick her. Turns out they picked both of us yeah. from the Air Force, which it's was a great. great class. Yeah. So I'm, I'm interested in what your impressions of NASA culture were. The astronaut office within NASA in particular, I mean, its lineage, its its heritage is out of the military test pilot community, Air Force and Navy. I remember when I arrived straight out of graduate school and all civilian background, there was a lot to adapt to to figure out what's the game here? What's I, I think I struggled more than you trying to recognize what bits are coming at me as sort of a competitor trying to take you personally, knock you off your game a bit, and what parts just jiving and teasing and sort of sharpening each other up. What did you notice as contrasts and similarities between the Air Force culture you were coming from and the culture within the astronaut office? Well, the culture that was military operations was extremely familiar. I felt the test pilot culture, the military approach to procedures and training and safety management, all of that felt very familiar. I felt like I was in my element at that point. And the part I did not have a lot of experience with was the politics, you know, the flight assignment politics, the, um, the people in the office who were focused on the politics. You know, I was always one of those people who was like, yes, ma'am, yes, sir, tell me my duty, I'll go execute. And to think that you had a political situation in the background for the uh, selection of flight assignments and schmoozing with the quote-unquote right people and all that, that that was a surprise to me to see there was some of that there and that there were people who were aware of it, you know, in the astronaut office. You know, I, I hadn't, I guess over time, I, I too became aware. So my naivety about that diminished over time, but I, I was not prepared for, you know, an office environment that had that dimension to it. It just wasn't something I saw in my younger years and certainly didn't see in the test pilot world and in the military world of the places I was in. I'm sure it was there. I just had gotten exposed to it. Yeah. Yeah. I, had, I think I had much the same experience that, uh, and I realized as I was writing my book, The Handprints on Hubble Book, and looking back through my notes and you know refreshing my memory, <laughs> I remember laughing at myself about how completely, totally, stupidly naive I was about that and, and how in, in contrast, you know, some of my classmates and other folks, they like seem to know from the beginning, there's a chessboard here and I know which pieces do this and which pieces do that and which pieces do the other. And I know how to play them and work them. And I was just yep. like you, I've, I've since become quite good at that. I had, you know, very adept at it. <laughs> but let me tell you that 26 year old me had no clue. <laughs> I I didn't either. I was I was 32 and I just hadn't been exposed to that. And then figuring out how to play in that chessboard and whether I even wanted to play in that chessboard or just withdraw yeah. and let fate take its hands. What did you decide? You know, I, I got assigned really early. So I figured whatever I was doing, I was doing it right. So I got assigned to fly. I think it was two years and seven months after arriving. So I had a Which very- Which is pretty short- is very, very short. And that those 90s, you know, the 90s was the era, the golden era of the shuttle from the standpoint of, you know, low wait times yeah. and high flipping times from one flight to another. And I was a beneficiary of that. So I just 
at some point I decided, you know, I don't need to work this much harder. I'm doing okay. But I would tell you that there's a chessboard for the office. And then there's a chessboard for the spacewalking part of the office, a whole separate oh, yes. chessboard, as, as you well know. I, I kind of failed at that one, too, I think. <laughs> I don't know if you failed. Well, the, the chessboard changed pretty dramatically, I think, in the late 80s, early 90s. There'd been one, but it became very much more cliquish as the space station was coming online. Yeah, there. it was almost like there was a, an unspoken, you know, you, you can be part of this clique or you're not going to be part of this clique when right. it came to the spacewalking parts of the office. Yeah. And I did get a spacewalk as you know, also. So I did succeed, I think, in breaking in that click, but I wouldn't say I was leading the click, not by a long shot. <laughs> yeah. No, and, I, I feel, I feel the same way. There seemed to be some regular go-to folks. Right. And it was sort of, I'm in that and I, I did it, but uh, never figured out. I, I Like you, I was always kind of wondering, do I want to try to play this game? Do I want to devote some percentage of my life and energy to figuring out the game and schmoozing these people? And I took largely the the no path. Yeah. Do my stuff. And I'm not going to devote that much of my life and energy to to the game. And, and you know, that was a good takeaway later on for me where my mindset had to be, I'm going to do the best I can do and the, the way I'm good at doing it. And if that's not good enough for other people, then that's okay. And if, you know, I never wanted anything so desperately enough that I would change myself to try to make it happen. I think just yeah. being myself was a secret to my success. And, yeah. and if I, if I got something because I was myself, great. But if I didn't get something because I was myself, that was okay too. So, yeah. so just being myself was incredibly important to me being true to myself if you will. I'm yeah. not trying to be somebody I wasn't. And I learned that out of the academy, by the way. That came from the academy, not from Air Force experience. Wow. So you eventually got assigned to do a long, pretty long stint on the International Space Station. And you did not approach that the way most astronauts do. You didn't launch off the planet for a while. You like packed up your life and moved <laughs> off the planet as semi-permanent resident of the space station. Yes. Tell us about that. I, w I want to know what was what was your thinking behind that and what difference do you think it made to how you experienced your time on the space station? Well, first of all, it was a mindset. It made a huge difference and it was all about simplifying my life, to be honest. You know, I, I'm single. I had a couple of pets, but that was it. And when that long flight was assigned to me. I had about, it was supposed to be two years notice. It turned out to be four years notice because there were ships. And it was three months or six months? You were, it was you were a six stay. month. It was a six okay. month deal. I think it was supposed to be four and a half months, but it ended up being almost six months. And I think it spoke to my wanderer spirit and liking to keep my life simple. But, you know, I wasn't going to have anybody in Houston on earth that was part of my family left behind. Uh, my pet's fortuitously passed away before I went on that flight. And they can't pay bills anyway. <laughs> they can't pay bills. You know, they were 18. And so it wasn't like it was a big surprise. You know, they, they passed away naturally uh, a few months before I took off. And, and I basically decided when the pets were gone, you know, I can just shut everything down. And boy, that'd make things so simple. So I called a moving company that did storage. And I said, come and get all my stuff. And I it was all out of pocket expenses for me, but it wasn't that bad. Come and get all my stuff and just take it away. The stuff that was valuable to me, like my jewelry and computer friends had made offers of, Hey, if you need me to do anything, let me know. And I called them up and they said, Hey, I need you to do something. Please hold on to my jewelry for about six months, or please take my car in your garage for about six months. And so I had lots of friends who came out and did that for me and, and everything else that was left over after the you know, the valuables were divvied out, the moving company came and took away. And, and I thought, boy, this makes life so simple. The, the lease was up, you know, I moved out of my apartment, I had nothing but a post office box at wow. that point. And I kept the post office box, but I called the bank, my bank USAA. And I said, I'm not going to be spending any money for a while. I'd like to make sure no money comes out of the account until I call you back. Because, you know, you know how it is with spaceflight. <laughs> yeah. You never know what the real schedule is. And I said, starting this date, I'd like you to make sure no money leaves my account for any reason other than these investment things. But 
don't let this change until I call you back. And that's going to be hopefully in about six months. And they were very accommodating. They got it. And so I had the bank account and that, that one bank account with and one post box and one post box. And boy, was it freeing. It was absolutely freeing to know I didn't have to worry about anything on earth at all. And I could mentally move to space and make that my residence. And that's what it felt like. It felt like space was my home on the space station. And I had a couple of great roommates, Jim Voss and Yuri Usachov. So as you talk to Jim and Yuri along the way, I'm wondering if you know, having having packed up and moved off Earth and simplified everything, did they have more of a when will this end, how much longer awareness in their mind? And you didn't because right. it kind of didn't matter when it ended. You're just here. Yeah, I, I could have done another six months easy. I, I felt like I was at home. You know, for them, both of them had wives and daughters, and they were looking forward to the day of their reunions. And so now I was too. I have an extended family and I was looking forward to seeing them. But but to me, it wasn't home. Home was on the space station. But for Jim and Yuri, I think home was in Yuri's case, Moscow, and in Jim's case, Houston. And I think there was a mentality difference there because of how I had arranged my life around making the space station my home with you know very little around me, which to me is very freeing. And I had a few books and I had, you know, some CDs and a few things you like took that. took your keyboard? Uh, the keyboard, they didn't approve for Space Station because they hadn't gone through all the EMI testing and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, electromagnetic so, interference. Yeah, yes. I, I got it on in my first mission, but I wasn't able to pull it off. Uh, that's too bad. Later on. I didn't get the approval chain in, in, in work early enough. You know, I thought about it a couple months before flight and they're like, oh, it's too late. We can't do it. And so <laughs> I let that go. But basically the, the, the whole thing of living on space station to me in my head, it was my permanent home. It was not a place on earth. And that That's was, um, cool. it was very cool. And, and it came up later, interestingly enough, you'll appreciate this in my security clearance situation. When I had no, <laughs> where have you lived? <laughs> you know, you have to give every month of where where you are and they get really nervous if there's they, something they don't understand that's right or a blank and, <laughs> and i had all these russians that i had been interfacing with that i had to write down in the security paperwork and so that was a fun little detour on the security side later on when i went back to the air force but but for yeah. me yes you're right kathy it was home and i one of the things i was interested in was i lost all the telemarketers because i had no home oh and so it was a question of how quick are they going to find me when I come back? And it turned out, you know, it took a while for them to realize Susan Helms was back on the planet and uh, were able to find me again. So, but it is amazing. They can find you. It's kind of disheartening, actually. I know a lot of people who would like to have that cleansing ritual. <laughs> <laughs> you ended up doing another thing that's not all that common among astronauts. You went back yes. to your parents' service after your station flight. And, and that really was the pathway to having what I would say is your first really genuine, significant command. Would that be right? Yes, that is correct. There were a couple of us, and Chili Chilton being a notable on this story, there were a couple of us who came to the astronaut office with the intent that at some point we would go back to the service. I was one of those people. Chili was one of those people. And I guess it goes back to, you know, in eighth grade, I knew I'd have an Air Force identity. And I also felt like the Air Force was in the space business. So when going back after leaving NASA at the 12-year point, that's 12 years at NASA, I decided it was time to go back. Um, it, it seemed like a really good fit. I wanted to go and they wanted me back. And I don't think every service good. was having that view. It still was infrequent, but the Air Force did it much more often than the, and more successfully, it has to be said, than either the Navy or, or I can't think of the Army ever doing it. But now you're going back to where you're going to be the colonel and then the general, one star, two star, three star. And with all that you've told us so far about the pointers and the insights about leading and style and culture, you know, from the academy to the astronaut office and on, do you have a clear sense of how that became or informed your approach to being the senior leader? Well, one thing that I made a decision to do 
was always ask questions. You know, sometimes when you get above a certain rank in the military, the leader doesn't want to be viewed as someone who doesn't have all the answers. And I made the decision right up front, that's, go- that's not going to work for me. Clearly, I've been out of things for 12 years. I have to ask questions. And so I did that a lot. I mean, I did it way a lot. I was everything from which side of the uniform does my name tag go? I've forgotten to, um, (laughs) I don't understand these new acronyms that y'all created while I was gone 12 years to, you know, I think I understand operations in space, but explain to me again, exactly how this GPS thing is working. I mean, I never hesitated to ask questions and I did that all the way until, you know, I retired. I, I just, I knew I had a big gap in my development as a military officer. And I ran into people who saw that gap, but saw that it was worth me having that gap for me to have the experiences I had that I could bring back. And then there were other yeah. people who were of the mindset, hey, you had this 12 year gap. That's not fair. It's yeah. not fair. You know, you don't deserve to be here. So in my, my first command, that dichotomy came through loud and clear. And, and so I had a challenge that I don't think a lot of other commanders had, which was a, a challenge of credibility in the command business, because I had skipped 12 years of going from a military yeah. captain to a military colonel. And, you know, those are the golden years for commander development in the services. Right. And I had missed all of it. And the view is that it's got to be those particular building blocks, like correct. basically a view that there's one and only one pathway that can really make you ready for it, which is a pretty narrow view. Yes. And some people appreciated my diverse experience as being helpful. Some people took my diverse experience as being a major lack of credibility. And that was a, a bias I did not expect, again, because I'm, I was naive about all this. But I thought certainly asking questions hopefully helps others realize that I recognize what I, what I don't know. And I want them, the experts, to fill me in so that I can make educate. I was the decision maker, but I wasn't necessarily set up for certain decisions to make well-informed decisions because I had some gaps in my commander experience background. And so me asking questions to the people around me about these things was a common thing for me to do, but it did make people uncomfortable. Some perceive me as a micromanager, which isn't the case. I was just trying to make a good decision. Others perceive me as, you know, why are you in command, ma'am, if you don't really know what you're doing? And others understood my diverse background and that the Air Force was trying to leverage my diversity in a way that was positive for military space. So I had all kinds underneath me who had differing views about me being in that place and some who are very vocal, by the way, about why I shouldn't have been in that place. So it was a challenging experience. Yeah, you got to learn to not pay too much. Well, don't pay overly much attention to the peanut gallery. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I had a friend, you're going to laugh at this. I had a friend tell me, a uh, very, very good friend. She's like, Susan, you're like the Hillary Clinton of the Air Force. You know, you got your detractors <laughs> and you got your fans, but you're going to have people try to tear you down because you're Hillary Clinton. You know, it just was. Yeah. You're the girl that got the three stars she shouldn't have had. Yeah. Yeah. And and so there were people who said that. I think ultimately, I think the Air Force was very wise in their choices for my career. I think I ended up in the places where I could do the most good. So I'm giving the Air Force credit for this one, in spite of the fact that there were detractors out there. Well, you had a great run and did an awful lot of good for the country. So we're we're coming close to time here. Reflecting back on this long and fascinating road that you've traveled and all the experiences that you've had, you know, you're now in a position to influence and shed some insight and inspiration to people coming up behind you, men, men and women. And I'm wondering if there's some two or three things you've commonly draw out and say to them at the early stages of their career. Yes, there are. And it again goes back to the academy. And also my experiences working with the Russians, I learned that if you were at your most competent, it was very difficult for people to use your gender against you. I learned that being the most competent person, being the most competent test engineer, being the most competent astronaut that I could be went a long way to keeping the naysayers at bay 
of people who would pick on you like they did at the academy just because you were female and they couldn't change to adapt to that situation. So competency, you, you have to be competent first. And other things can flow from that. But if you don't have the credibility of competence, I don't think you're going to get very far if you're in some of the situations you and I have been in. Uh, and of course, you're one of those people who always was uber competent. You know, people will try, you know, we're, we're, we can have a gender discussion here. People will try to tear you down. But yep. if you're as competent, it doesn't as, end. If, if you're as competent as you can be, that goes a long way to making that dissipate, I think. And the second thing I learned, and again, this goes back to being in male-dominated environments, which for both you and me has been a, a standard <laughs> of our lives. Someday it'll be 50-50, but you know, you and I grew up in an era where it was more like, you know, one of 50 or one of 20 or one whatever, of one yeah. of a hundred. There are differences between working with guys who just haven't had a lot of experience working with women and working with guys who are misogynists. You know, I, I'd say there's far more of the former than there are the latter. Mm -hmm. And you have to have sort of a sixth sense to figure out where they sit. I mean, I worked with a lot of people who had never worked with women before and they were uncomfortable about it. The good news is if you're showing your competence and you're showing your ability to be a, a younger sister in a brotherhood or a sister in a brotherhood is how I like to call it. You're not trying to act like a guy, you're, but you're trying to act like yourself among the brotherhood. That goes a long way to having those people who are uncomfortable to realizing it's no big deal. I like to tell the story of John Casper, who was my first commander on the shuttle. And he had never flown with a woman before, but before he flew with me. And it was his third flight, I think. And so he was nervous about it. And I, you know, by this time I've been in military situations. I've been, you know, myself all over all kinds of scenarios with bathrooms and field work oh, yeah. and all this kind of stuff in the military. So I knew it was going to work out just fine because I'd been through it so many times being around guys all the time, but John didn't know. So I told him, I said, John, don't worry. When we get up there, it's all going to work out. You have nothing to worry about. I'm going to pull my weight. And as far as the guy girl thing, you know, it's all going to work out. It'll be just fine. And I knew when we got up in orbit a couple of days later, you know, it's a very small cabin and not a lot of privacy. You can make privacy if you want to, but there's not a lot of it. And, you know, somewhere in the middle of the flight, he stripped down to his skivvies and started to change his clothes because he forgot I was female. And so I yeah. told him, OK, John, this is that situation I was talking about where you're not going to worry about it anymore. We're here. <laughs> you just stripped in front of me and you didn't even realize it. Yeah. So there's a lot of men out there who fall in that category and just giving them a good experience on working with a woman, I think, is important because you'll convert them, so to speak. You know, they'll go from being uncomfortable to comfortable being around women and realizing, you know, this is we're human. We're all human. And, and this is nothing to fear. You do hit those few people, though, that cannot be changed. And yep. you have to know them as well and recognize them. And, and in effect, don't give them ammunition in the process. So that would be another life lesson I took away from that. And then, of course, the last lesson as a commander, you know, caring for the people, not caring for your career, but caring for their careers, I think is an incredibly important dimension of leadership that cannot be overlooked, along with prepare for the worst, hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. And when the worst happens, remember not to play the blame game. Remember that nobody wanted bad things to happen. And you still have to be the leader in the face of a bad day. And knowing everything that comes out of your mouth matters in those moments more than any other time. I think that's really, really important. We've all seen people who in a bad day, reacted badly in those conditions. And the people that they lead underneath those circumstances don't forget it. And so being someone of character, not just when everything's going well and astronauts look good on TV, but on those bad days where things don't go well, still being a person of character is, I think, the essence of leadership. I think you're summarizing a servant leader, too, that you're about the mission and you're about the people that are executing the mission and not just chasing your own headline or your own career. You're not playing for points, you're playing for purpose. 
Yes, absolutely. I, I never had much time for people who were playing for points. Yeah. I would admit that. I have, I have a lower tolerance for that probably because of my math mind than others, I think. Yeah. Well, I should let you get back to your day. And uh, where's your next RV escapade? Oh, I am meeting up with STS-78, one of my crews on the shuttle. We're having a reunion the first week of May in Texas. And I'm driving my RV down there to meet up with the guys. And this is a crew I haven't spent much time with since I left NASA. And I suspect it might be because it's 25-year anniversary or something like that. <laughs> I'm not quite sure, but but the bottom line is it's a group of people I haven't spent a lot of time with in recent yeah. years. And so I'm hoping the get-together goes well. And you're going to bring the party wagon. I'm bringing the party wagon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the little spaceship so everyone can you know, remember what it's like. <laughs> Well, Susan, great to talk to you. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Oh, thank you, Kathy. And it's good to see you. Likewise. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com. This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most everywhere podcasts are found. To be the first to know when the next episode drops, head over to interastra.space.